on the uh, the what was taking place in the book of um, of Galatians, the background to the to the book of Galatians, because um, it's important for us to keep this in our mind uh, moving forward. So last week I focused on trying to give a um, and a, a, a similar scenario in the 16th century um, that Paul was addressing, right? Um, I mean, that Martin Luther had to address, uh, addressing medieval Catholicism where they were teaching that justification was by faith, um, but that's compared to what Martin Luther and the Reformers taught, that justification is by faith alone. Right. One uh, sees uh, salvation by faith but we must also make sure that we add our good works in order to receive God's declaration of, of being righteous. And one sees the finished work of Jesus Christ alone um, and our faith in him alone as necessary apart from our works. Um, I wanted you all to see uh, in, I was going to skip this, but I think it's important. I want you all to see that uh, this is a, a very similar to what Paul was addressing t in the the province of Galatia. Okay, so um, of course we know that the author is Paul, right? Um, mostly, no one disputes whether or not Paul was the actual writer of the book of Galatians. It is um, it is so autobiographical that most people just automatically accept uh, Paul's authorship. Um, second, this book would have been written in the late 40s, okay? Now, that's important for us because we, we sometimes we talk about this in Bible study, that some people thought that James and Paul were writing to correct each other, <laughs> um, um, So I believe that the book of James was written probably in the mid-40s, maybe around 45, um, and, and James says that, uh, a person is not justified by faith only, but also by works. Okay, we see that in James chapter 2. Um, and some people believe that, that Paul, uh, writing probably three years later, um, I believe that this book was probably written um, around 48 or 49, um, that Paul was writing to correct James. And so he puts a big emphasis on uh, believing that justification is by faith apart from works. Um, I'm not going to take the time today, we'll look at this uh, when we get into the actual text of Galatians, um, to see that I don't believe that James and Paul are confronting one another, right? Um, I think that they believe the exact same thing, and as a matter of fact, when we read in chapters 1 and 2, Paul says specifically that he went to Jerusalem, he met with Peter and James, and they discussed their various viewpoints on the gospel and, and things like that. And they were in 100% agreement. Um, so um, I don't believe that they were writing to correct one another. And if we were to look in other books, specifically Romans, uh, we will see that James also agrees with James. I mean, Paul also agrees with James that you must have works as a Christian to demonstrate your justification. Um. But I want you to really quickly look in Acts chapter 15. There is a question here um, that goes to the dating of this book. Some people, well, let me say, there's two viewpoints on who are the Galatians. Okay. Um, there is what we would call a northern view, I'm not going to get in depth into this, and a southern view. Okay? Um, there were uh, a group of people who invaded from above the Black Sea and pressed their way down into what we call today Asia Minor, um, what, they, um, 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 what, what we call Asia Minor. And um, they even went as far as what we now call France. Okay, if you um, remember that the, the old name for France would have been Gaul, G-A-U-L, taking you back to elementary school or high school uh, uh, history. Okay, um, this is because these people were called Galatai or Gala. 
Okay, this is where we get the word Galatians from. This is where the people who um, who would have originally populated, um, eventually populated uh, what we now call France um, came from. They originally were just in the northern part of the area. But when Rome came in and, and took over, they in increased the area to include the, this, this, the southern part um, of, of Asia Minor as well. We, people debate whether or not Paul is addressing the people who lived in the north who would have just been ethnically um, um, uh, Galatian, or if the word Galatian is just referring to the province, this, this whole area, um, and it would have been a, a mixture of people who lived in this southern area. Depending on which view you take determines when you date the book. Um, if you believe that Paul was referring to the people who lived in the north who, wa who were ethnic ethnically Galatian, you will date this book in the mid-50s. Um, and if you take the view that I take, which is the southern view, which I think is most likely look, um, um, due to his, um, his missionary journeys, um, then you date this book in the 40s. Okay. Now, I think that one of the things that helps us to see this is in Acts chapter 15. And I think that this also helps us to see the circumstances that's going on that, that um, in the, during this time when Paul is writing. I believe that Paul writes the book of Galatians before Acts chapter 15 takes place. Now, Acts chapter 15, let's read, I'm going to read it really quickly. Starting at verse 6, we call this the Jerusalem Council. It says, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Excuse me. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set, up, set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all of his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God but that we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has, um, has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now, it goes on to talk about um, a decree that they sent out to the churches. Now, notice what's taking place here. Um, The Gentiles are coming into the church and it is causing confusion. Okay. From AD 48 to AD 58, um, Paul goes on three missionary journeys. He goes on these journeys and he's spreading the gospel and he's setting up churches everywhere he goes. And he writes his first epistle, um, his first six letters actually during that 10 year period of time, Galatians being the first one. He wrote the book of Galatians because immediately after finishing his first missionary journey, he hears that his new converts are now turning their back on him and on his gospel. Why were they turning their back on him and on the gospel? Because 
Jewish Christians who were opposing Paul were now traveling around and starting to teach them that faith in Christ alone was not enough. That in addition to faith in Christ, they needed to follow the law. So, as Paul says in, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 7, they were turning from his gospel to a different gospel. Now, the reason I think that it's important uh, that we connect this with, um, with um, compare this with, with uh, Acts chapter 15 is because in Galatians chapter 2, Paul recounts a time coming to Jerusalem uh, and meeting with Peter and James. And it does not match up with what we see in Acts chapter 15. Some people believe that what Paul is referring to in Acts chapter 2 is the event of Acts, um, um, Acts 15. But if we read this carefully, the, the events don't match up. And number two, if the events of Acts chapter 15 had taken place prior to Paul writing the book of Galatians, Paul would have certainly mentioned that Peter, James, and the other apostles are in agreement with me, and this is what we decreed at the council. But he does not say that. He talks about a time where him and Peter were at odds because even Peter was influenced by this group of people, so much so that whereas he used to eat with Gentile Christians when these Jews came around, he turned his back on them and would not eat with them. Now, it's hard to believe that Peter would have met with Paul, came up with this decree, and then after that became a hypocrite and did not follow his own decree, right? So, in order for us to understand this dilemma, we have to remember that these Jews were only following the practices that they would have understood from the Old Testament. Okay. Now, I want you to, to mentally walk with me here as we lead up to, up to these events. Um, because what they were trying to do for these Gentiles is set up a, a, a plan for them to be included in the people of God. Okay, now think about the Old Testament backdrop. After Adam and Eve sinned and after they, they fell, right, um, God begins to call a families and individuals that he will work through in order to accomplish his will. Right. So after Adam and Eve sinned, we hear about Cain and Abel having their conflict and Cain kills Abel. But then we hear about Seth, right? <laughs> Savannah says, Seth, <laughs> that's my daddy, all <laughs> right? Okay, so we, we hear about uh, people like Seth. We hear about Enoch. We hear about Noah, right? God calls them, and he uses them to accomplish his plan. Then we hear that God finally selects an uncircumcised pagan idol worshiper named Abram to be the father of all of his covenant people. Even though he was uncircumcised, a pagan, and an idol worshiper, God changed his name to Abraham, and he gave him a sign to demonstrate all who would be a part of God's covenant people. And what was that sign? Circumcision. There we go. Okay. He gave him a sign of circumcision in order to know who was a part of the covenant and who was not. Centuries later, God selected Moses to lead the descendants of Abraham who had been enslaved in Egypt, out of Egypt and into the promised land. Moses led the people to Mount Sinai where God made a covenant with his people, which we call the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are not the entirety of the law. They are a summary of all of the laws that God gave to his covenant people through Moses. Now, if you remember, right, 
Um, when you see the Ten Commandments in uh, Exodus chapter 20, immediately you start getting follow-up laws on what they needed to do in, um, with the tabernacle, how to have prepared the sacrifices. And so we see from Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy, we have more laws, some 600 more laws that God institutes that they were required to follow. So the Ten Commandments are only a summary of all of these laws. All of the, the, all of the laws that, that are broken out can in some way be explained as just a summary of one of, or more of the, ten, of the Ten Commandments. Everyone see that? So when we talk about, um, talk about the law, we're not talking about just the Ten Commandments. We're talking about all of the commands and laws that God gave in Exodus through Deuteronomy. And just like, the cir like circumcision, keeping the law was not the means of, of obtaining a relationship with Yahweh. It was the proof that one was a part of the covenant community. And likewise, those who broke God's laws were cut off from the people of God. You see that? Being circumcised and following the law was not the means of obtaining a relationship with God. Being circumcised and following God's law just demonstrated those people who did have a relationship with God. There's a huge difference. Okay, they want to see that. Um, now, the question is, during Old Testament times, how did non-Jews or Gentiles obtain a relationship with God? Okay, through the prophets? By faith? Personal encounter? Burnt offering? Circumcision through the Jews? Okay. <laughs> they would have to convert to Judaism, right? They, they would have to renounce their old gods, renounce their citizenship basically in whatever country they came from, and they would literally have to become a Jew. They had to be circumcised, keep the law, and take on the cultural practices of the Jews. They had to become a Jew in order to um, have this relationship with Yahweh, right? And that included following the Old Testament law. Now, jumping to the New Testament, um, we know that in, from Acts chapter 2 that when the church began, there were only Jews a part of the church. And that was consistently true up until around Acts chapter 10. So even when we look in Acts chapter 6, when there was a, a dispute between, it says, the Hebrews and the Hellenists, these were was, was still two groups of Jews that were having conflict. So in the early understanding of the church, Christianity itself was still a Jewish religion. You see that? If you wanted to have a relationship with God, you must be a Jew. That means you have to be circumcised, follow the law, and make sure that you follow our cultural practices. And when Jesus came, that mindset did not change. In order to be a Christian, in order to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you still must be a Jew. I want you to look in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Very familiar passage um, for, for us. Starting at verse 40. Listen to what it says about these early Christians. Um, whom we know would have been Jewish Christians. Verse 40, Acts chapter 2, verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. 
Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need. So continually, continuing daily with one accord, where? In the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. What we see is that even though these um, Jews had become Christians, they didn't stop any of their cultural practices. They continued to go to the temple. They continued to circumcise their children. They continued to eat kosher meals, follow the dietary laws. In every single aspect of their lives, they continued in Jewish culture. And there was no problem with them continuing in their Jewish cultures. Why? Because there's nothing about Christianity that requires us to turn our back necessarily. Let me say necessarily, right? If, if there's a practice in your culture that is specifically um, anti-God, then you must turn from that. But there is nothing in Christianity that says once you become a Christian, you must stop being culturally who you are. Okay? It, it, if you are a Native American, you can still be a, a, a Native American and a Christian, right? Now, you have to make sure that some of the practices that you follow don't, you know, are not specifically pagan and, and, and moving you away from God, right? But that's in every culture. It is nothing wrong for Jews to continue to be Jews and continue to be Christian. The problem was that some of them believed that these cultural practices were necessary for their salvation. And what they did was then when Paul started evangelizing and bringing Gentiles into the church, they taught the Gentiles that they must also become Jews in order to be Christians. You got to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. You got to follow Jewish dietary laws in order to be a Christian. Yeah, 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 faith in Jesus is important, but you must also be circumcised, follow dietary laws, keep the law. You see that. And so th in, in a sense, that is the connection between what I was trying to help us see, see last, last week because that is exactly the problem that was being faced in the medieval church when, with Martin Luther. See, Catholicism was teaching that you must have faith in Jesus Christ, but you must also have good works in order to demonstrate your, your righteousness before God would declare you righteous. And Martin Luther studying um, uh, Romans and Hebrews and, and the Psalms, right, and other books, the Hebrews as well, he began to see that your faith in Jesus Christ is alone what is necessary for your justification, that you cannot add any good works to faith in Christ in order to be saved. Because if you do, you are following, as Paul says in Galatians 1.7, a different gospel. Um, now, side note, as I said in uh, Bible study, uh, someone came and asked me this uh, after church. Um, but what do, you know, well, I guess, what do I think about, about um, Catholics? What do you think about Pentecostals and all, right? My, my viewpoint is not, I'm not saying that, that no one that's Catholic can be saved, no one that's, that's um, uh Anything other than Baptist can be saved. That's not my point, okay? Um, we are not saved by believing the right doctrine. We're saved by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, right? So um, there are 
you know, in, in my opinion, tons of, of people who are Catholic that um, are saved, tons of people who are Pentecostal who are saved, tons of people in all denominations that are that are genuinely saved. And there are a ton of people that are Baptists that come to church every single Sunday and they don't know the Lord. There are a ton of people who are Catholic that go to church every single Sunday and they don't know the Lord. Right? Um, so I don't want anyone to hear me saying that, oh, we're lumping whole groups of people in categories and saying that these people cannot be saved. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm saying is we want to maintain the truth of the gospel. And the truth of the gospel is Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection and his sinless life is sufficient to p take care of all of our sins. And our good deeds mean absolutely nothing in God's presence when it comes to our salvation. We can put our faith and trust in Christ alone, and that will satisfy God for our salvation. Is everyone with me? So, again, at this point, Jews would have believed that all of us, us all of us are Gentiles, we're all Gentiles, that uh, we were unclean, right? And it took Peter repeatedly seeing this vision in Acts chapter 10 uh, to, under, to get the understanding that Gentiles were no longer unclean. Remember, Jesus says to Peter, that which I have called clean, you don't call unclean. And so in Acts chapter 11, Peter has to explain to the Jews why he went to a group of Gentiles and shared the gospel. And Peter says that when he did this, that they received the Holy Spirit the same way the Jews had received the Holy Spirit uh, on the day of Pentecost. Now, at this point, it really wasn't a problem because the Gentiles who would have been a part of the church would have been a very small group. Um, and therefore, there wouldn't have been a lot of opportunity for there to be a conflict. But um, the Jews would have still been familiar with Gentiles having a relationship with God. How would they have had a relationship with God? They would have to convert to Judaism, be baptized, I mean, I'm sorry, be uh, circumcised, follow dietary laws, keep the law. Okay. So I think that this is the backdrop for the Jews um, at this time. They would have believed that in order for Gentiles to be saved, they had to keep the law, follow these practices. Now, along comes Paul. And Paul believes that he is now the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he takes these missionary journeys and he goes all over Asia, right? At that time, they would have just called it Asia, right? We call it what we call today Asia Minor or um, really today is just Turkey. But he would have traveled extensively to reach out to Gentiles and he would have flooded the church now with, <laughs> with Gentiles, so much so that the Gentiles started to outnumber the Jews. And then Paul had the nerve to tell these Gentiles, you don't have to, you ain't got to be circumcised. As a matter of fact, you don't even have to keep the law. And that for many Jews would have been a step too far. Wait a minute, Paul. Are you saying that Gentiles don't have to become Jews in order to be saved? They don't have to be circumcised. They can eat ham. <laughs> you said you said that they can they can really be saved and still eat ham, Paul. They they don't have to keep the law. And to them, that would have been what we call some call libertinism, right, um, or antinomianism that they were they were they were against the law. And this is exactly what Paul 
was trying to get them to see. There are no rules or commands or laws that we as Christians must follow in order to be Christians. We as Gentiles do not have to keep the law or become Jews in order to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the entire backdrop of the book of Galatians. How can we be included in the people of God? Do you have to be circumcised and keep the law in addition to faith in Christ? Or is faith in Christ enough? And chapter after chapter, Paul hammers the point home that your faith in Jesus Christ is enough. Now, before I move on, um, I'm going to try to repeatedly bring uh, bring this home because I have I had this conversation like every single week. Right. You know, um, as a matter of fact, I was having I had a conversation with someone this morning. It's like, you know, I feel bad that at my age, I'm just now starting to understand the gospel. Right. And I'm like, look, I'm on, I'm 39. <laughs> I went to seminary. <laughs> I got two degrees and I still don't fully understand the gospel. Paul, throughout his writings, these writings span 30 years of ministry. And repeatedly, Paul keeps coming back to refreshing his understanding of the gospel. The context of the conversation is, is that sometimes we, we, we tend to remember the things that we've done and, and we beat ourselves up. Oh, I didn't read my Bible enough this week. or Oh, I didn't do this. And, and so we think that because we fall short in certain areas that we aren't as close to God or we aren't spiritually mature or maybe God doesn't love us or, or maybe, maybe God might push us away. So what we need to, to keep in mind is that as we are walking our way through the book of Galatians, that the backdrop to all this is how do I have a secure relationship with God? And if the answer is we must keep a law, a rule, or follow something that we must do, then all of us are going to always rethink our salvation, question where we are with God. Does God really love me? I don't really know. I, I only read the Bible three times this week, and so, you know, maybe I'm not as, as, as good as I thought I was. But if our relationship is rock solid based on God selecting us through his son and paying for our sin, past, present, and future, and as we will see, making us a new creation— that relationship is rock solid regardless of what we do. Now, we should do something. Okay. We should. We should do something. Don't get me wrong. Right. <laughs> uh, don't, don't make me go back to 10 more months of the book of James. Okay. You should be doing something. But your relationship with God does not change based on your performance. Um, another question I uh, uh, talked about this week with someone is, are we as Christians obligated to keep the law? Um, first, again, we need to decide on what the law means, right? What do we mean by the law? Um, and I think that um, we can see that. We could look in, in several places, but I think that we can see that specifically in the book of Galatians. Look in Galatians real quick, because Paul addresses um, specifically um, what the law is. So the question is, were these Gentiles only being asked to be circumcised? Maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's faith in Christ plus only circumcision. You don't have to follow the law or anything, just be circumcised. But I don't think that that is uh, Paul's understanding, right? Um, the, the, ten, the, the Ten Commandments is not the law, right? It's not the whole law, okay? Right? It's a summary of, of the law. Um, the law is an entire system, right? It is a system. It includes um, their civil laws, okay? So 
if you commit adultery, what happens? You get stoned to death. Why? Because this is a theocracy. There is no separation between, you know, the, the, go the government and religion. You, make, you have a religious violation, and we're gonna, you're going to have a civil punishment, okay? Um, there is no separation between that. Uh, there is no separations um, um, with the Ten Commandments and their ceremonial law. Okay, so um, there is a, I'll be very careful, uh, there is something that most women experience every 28 days. You with me? Okay. Uh, 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 according to the law, some people are like, what's that? <laughs> according to the law, you can't come to worship God during that time because you're unclean. A man who has intercourse with his wife, he can't come to church. He can't worship God because, I mean, if, if, if it was done the night before worship, <laughs> you, you, you're, you're considered unclean. Okay. It is a system of things that impacts every single aspect of life. Okay. Now, notice what Paul says in, in Galatians. Number one, we, we easily see that, that these people, were be, the Galatians were being required to be circumcised, correct? Right. Now, but notice in Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul is addressing dietary laws. Peter was eating with the Gentiles. He was having like ham sandwiches. He's like, man, this stuff is good. We don't have this in Jerusalem. <laughs> okay. Okay. But then Jews from Jerusalem shows up. And he could not eat with the Gentiles anymore. Because the Gentiles were not followed. They weren't being circumcised and they weren't following dietary laws. Right? So it, it's not just get circumcised. Is you have to eat the right type of food as well. Look over in Galatians chapter 4. Verse 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those things which by nature are not God's. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Not only were they being required to be circumcised, but then they had to follow the dietary laws. Now they were being required to follow the feast days. Right? So, it is not just circumcision or following the Ten Commandments. It is you must follow every single law that was given, all 600 and something of them. Is that, that's what you want. Paul says you can have that. <laughs> but it's not going to work out well for you. Okay. Um, so. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 3, listen to what Paul says. He says, I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a what? A debtor to keep the whole law. You, you, you can't pick and choose some, some practices if you want to add the keeping of the law to your faith in Jesus Christ, you must keep all of it. The feast days, the sacrifices, the dietary laws, stoning people to death, don't come to church when you, you know, are un <laughs> unclean. You must keep all of it. But if you do, Paul says, verse 4, you have become estranged from Christ. You're separating yourself from Jesus. 
if you try to keep the law. Um, so back to the question, are we as Christians obligated to keep the law? It's a complicated qu answer. <laughs> the answer is no, we're not obligated to keep the law. Number one, we are not. Um, it's complicated because nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament, right? Um, and that should still give you a clue that we're not obligated to keep the law uh, because if we had to, we would have to keep all of them. But remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy is not repeated in the New Testament. If it was, we should all be Seventh-day Adventists and go to church on Saturday. Okay. But here we are on Sunday. <laughs> um, but we're not obligated to, um, to keep the whole law. Um, and I think that that is pretty clear from the teaching of Scripture. Um, I want you to look with me a couple passages of Scripture, and then I'm, I'm almost done. And I will tell you what we need, what our relationship to the law is um, after this. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 17 is what I want you. Chapter 5, verse 17. Matthew 5. Bless you. Is everyone there? All right, let's read... Um, Jesus's words, he says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Listen to what he says next. For assuredly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Okay. I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. Nothing in the law will ever fall, um, fail. It will all come to pass. Heaven and earth will fail before the law fails until it is all fulfilled. Okay? So I'm not trying to destroy the law. I'm trying to fulfill the law. Right? Nothing will fail in the law until it is fulfilled. Okay, you, you see me, see that. So it's pointing to a time when the law is no longer going to be necessary because it's going to be fulfilled. Okay. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 1, we should all uh, be familiar with uh, these verses. Uh, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And notice what Jesus is saying. I mean, I'm Jesus, what Paul is saying. If we remember from Romans um, chapter 7, Paul is complaining that he is trying to keep the law, but every time he keeps the law, tries to keep the law, he finds himself frustrated because he can't do it. And at, th at the end of the chapter, he's ready to give up. Oh, wretched man, who will deliver me? I cannot do this. So he says, I thank God that that comes through Jesus Christ. And because it comes through Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Those who fail to keep God's law, they will not be condemned because they are in Christ. You're a sinner. You should be punished. 
but you are not because you are in Christ. He goes on to say that the law is weak. Now, Romans chapter 7, he says the law is holy and righteous and good. But he says that the law is weak because of my flesh. I can't keep God's law no matter how hard I try. So instead of God focusing on the law, what he did was he fulfilled the requirements of the law by sending his son. Back to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Nothing will fail in the law until it is all fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled every single requirement of the law. He lived a perfectly sinless life, and then he was crucified in our place so that the requirement of the law, perfect holiness, righteousness, obedience, would be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So those of us who possess God's spirit, there's no need to follow the law because the requirements of the law are fulfilled in us. You see that? Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. One verse, verse 4. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Let's read it out loud. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who b- believes. Now, it's interesting that this Greek word here for end can mean fulfilled or it can mean termination. Right. Christ is the fulfillment of the law um, um, for righteousness or who all who believe or Christ is the termination of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And I think that in the context, the word termination is what is best, is the best translation of it. Jesus terminates the law for those who try to, um, because there's no more need for us to try to fulfill it to obtain righteousness. That righteousness has already been given to us by faith. And that's exactly what Paul is going to repeatedly say throughout the book of Galatians. Right. Um, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Paul ends the book of Galatians, the last two chapters, talking about Christian ethics, how we are supposed to live. Listen to what he says as um, he starts this section. Chapter 5, verse 16. I say then, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Out loud. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. If you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Paul says, if you have God's Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, we might think, well, maybe there's some Christians who are under the law because they're not being led by the Spirit. In Paul's mind, if you're not being led by the Spirit, you're not a Christian. All Christians are being led by the Spirit. And we may not follow very closely, but, <laughs> but he says you're not under the law if you possess the spirit. Because the spirit is working his character in you. And when the Holy Spirit is working his character in you, there is no need for a law. There's no law that can be written against love, joy, peace, long suffering. <laughs> Right. Gentleness, self-control. There's no laws against those things. So if you walk in the spirit and walking in love, we'll see that you are already 
fulfilling the law, even though you aren't breaking down dietary laws and things like that. You're already doing what pleases God. You see that? Last scripture, I think this is one of the closest passages that comes to talking about the law being abolished. Ephesians chapter 2. Of course, we remember that at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 is Paul writing about us being saved by grace through faith, right? And he says that that's not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. Um, listen to what he goes on to say, starting at verse 14. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh, excuse me, in his flesh, the enmity, right, the strife. What is the strife? What's the beef between us and God? The law of commandments contained in ordinances. The law is the strife between us and God. It's not something that we follow in order to have a close relationship with God. It is the cause of our beef. Because God requires 100% obedience. 100%. And the best that we could do is be like the Pharisees. All right, well, I know I'm supposed to keep the Sabbath day holy. But I got some work to do. All right, well, I'm going to just carry this little stool around with me. And every 50 feet, I'm going to sit down and do what I need to do. And then I'm going to get up and walk 50 more feet and, and sit down. And so what we're doing is violating God's Sabbath while making sure we feel spiritual. And we all have those little workarounds, right? Well... It's not technically lying, you know. Well, it's only a, a box of pencils. It's only a, a couple dollars not reported to the IRS. God demands 100% obedience. But because we can't give him 100% obedience, the law is what condemns us. So that's Paul's point. If you want to obey the law, you are asking for God to curse you. And we'll see that in the book of Galatians. You're asking God to curse you. But Paul's point it's on the cross, Jesus set aside the strife. He fulfilled the law, and then he gave you what you needed, perfect righteousness. He just placed it on your account so that you don't need to follow the law to please God anymore because that is fulfilled in you. Now, here's the question. What is the point of the Old Testament then for us as Christians? Do we have to read it? Do we have to follow it? Is there anything worthwhile in the Old Testament law that is good for us? Yes or no? Can I give you an example? <laughs> good, oh, good examples. I got you. Listen, I think that this has been boiled down to three things. Okay, uh, Three things, right? Um, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Calvin, some of the reformers, they talked about um, different uses, uses of the law. Okay? And, and basically, we can combine these into three things. Number one, first, Martin Luther says that the law acts as a mirror teaching us about the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of our own hearts. Uh, st keep working on catechism questions. That's going to be one of your questions and answers coming up real soon. Okay? <laughs> um, the law teaches us about God's holiness, right? When God says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, it teaches you what God is like, right? But it also teaches you 
about your sinfulness because when God says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, you're like, man, I wish I could do that. And then sometimes we actually do it. <laughs> okay. So it's, it's the, the law serves as a mirror for us. It teaches us about God, but it also teaches us what's in our own hearts. Number two, um, or, um, Augustine said, the law bids us as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it to know how to ask for help fr- of the grace of God. Right. So that's what the law does. When we try to follow the law, if we're doing it correctly, we should be begging God for grace. If you are following the law and you think you're doing a really good job, you, you, you messing up the process. <laughs> the law is supposed to teach you, I need grace. Number two, the sec- second use of the law is to restrain evil. That's number two. Restrain evil. The quote that I just gave from Augustine was a part of um, number one. Number two is uh, the law is used to restrain evil. Now, the law cannot change our evil hearts, right? But it can threaten us with punishments, right? Repeatedly throughout the (laughs) Old Testament, God says, if you do this, I'm going to do this. Okay? And you may want to do that so much, but I just... I don't want the punishment. Okay. Um, some of us, we pat ourselves on the back. Well, I've never killed anybody before. That's not because you didn't think about it. That's because you don't want to go to jail. Right? <laughs> right? I mean, if there was no threat of punishment, we would do a whole lot more stuff than what we really do. Right? But the law restrains us by telling us the punishment that God is going to mete out if we go forward with what's in our hearts. And so the second use of the law is to restrain sin. Number three, the third use of the law is to guide believers into the good work God has planned for them by teaching them, uh, by teaching, teaching us what pleases the Father. Right? So it's a guide for us. What will make the Father proud? How do you know? How do we know what the will of God is? We can read through the Old Testament, read through the law, and and see the examples that was given in the Old Testament and find out what things please God. And as we match our lives up with trying to live in a way that pleases God, we know that we are in his will. Um, So there are uses for the law, even though as Christians we're not obligated to be under the law. Because again... When we follow, when we follow these, when we're saying that we're using the law as an example, notice we're not following all of the law, right? Because we're not stoning people who commit adultery or fornicating or who are homosexual or anything else, right? Now, um, I love how people say, oh, that's because we live in America. Everybody can get a passport. You can go live in a country that that allow you to do that, but you won't. Because we both know the truth, that we, we aren't really following the law. Okay. Now, moving forward in the book of Galatians, this is what I, wanna, um, I want us to r- r- repeatedly see. We'll come back to this um, next Sunday. We'll be looking at verses um, uh, Galatians 1, uh, 1 through 5. Okay. And Paul says, real quick, I want you to read, um, um, read just verse 4 of um, Galatians 1. And this is, is something that we have to keep um, in the forefront of, of our minds, and I'll, I'll amplify this in uh, uh, next Sunday. Verse 3 says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. He gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. We have to maintain uh, what we call an eschatological viewpoint. Okay, the Greek word um, for um, um, the Greek word eschatos means last. Okay, if we're talking about studying end times prophecy, 
we're talking about eschatology. We're talking about the study of last things, right? So when we say that we're having an eschatological viewpoint, we're, we're looking at everything through the lens of what God plans and is trying to accomplish as the end goal for all of the world, right? And, 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 and there's no way for us to understand what Paul is trying to teach us in Galatians without keeping an eschatological viewpoint. And in Paul's mind, just like this is a common view of uh, a Jewish, um, Jewish thought, if you read, you know, non-Christian Jewish literature of this time period, that the world is broken up into two ages, the present age and the age of the world to come. Paul says Jesus died for our sins so that he could deliver us from this present evil age. And therefore, he places us in the future age, the age to come. Right. Now, as we'll see as we go through the um, through Galatians, the Old Testament law is a part of the present evil age that Jesus delivered us from. And the age to come is now available to all who put their trust in Christ because it is the age of the Spirit. And when we look in, 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 in Galatians 3 and 4, Paul completely, um, multiple times, con contrast the covenant, the old covenant, with the spirit, the covenant, the law, all of that set on one side, and then he compares that with the spirit. We are completely set free from trying to keep rules and laws to please God. He is already pleased with us because we have embraced his son. And he puts his spirit in us so that we can live in a way that pleases him, although it will not be perfect. But he himself is the one that is doing the work in order to make us into the people that he created us to be. And if we add in the book of Philippians, he will finish his work. And it has nothing to do with your actions. Yes, you must, you know, obey. But for the most part, it's the Holy Spirit dragging us along into obedience. <laughs> I was telling somebody that the other day. I know that most of the times when I, like, take the next step, it's just a little bit like, pow. I was like, oh, yeah, it's time to walk in this direction. Galatians is trying to tell us your relationship with God does not depend on your ability to be perfect. You can't keep God's law. Paul repeatedly says that even if we look, add in the book of Romans, he says, the Jews can't keep God's law. He says that to Peter in, in Galatians chapter 2. No one can keep God's law. If we are trying to base our relationship with God on how many times we read the Bible, <laughs> how many times we come to church, how well we treat other people, if that is what you're basing your salvation on, you are on weak foundation. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do all of those things. We absolutely should out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. But that is not the basis of our relationship. The basis of our relationship is Jesus's finished work on the cross, period. And that is the only reason God has embraced you and will never leave you nor forsake you. Is anyone with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for allowing us again to look throughout your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to diligently read through the book of Galatians. Paul is trying to clear up in our minds 
um, the very reason that we have a relationship with you. That reason has nothing to do with us. If it depended on us, all of us would be sentenced to hell. And yet, because of your grace and your mercy and your love and your compassion, you sent your son to do for us what we could not do. And that is to live in perfect obedience to all of your laws and commands. And now that we have faith and trust in Christ, we still can't follow your law because of the sinfulness of our flesh. And yet the perfect righteousness that comes through your law has been accomplished in us because of our faith in Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to not embrace unconsciously a different gospel, a gospel that says that we must trust in Christ and also do a lot of good deeds. That's not the gospel. The gospel says that all we can do is trust in Christ to save us because a drowning person can't do anything to save themselves. They just have to give up and let the lifeguard pull them to the shore. And that is what we are as sinners, drowning in the sea of your wrath. And trying to do a bunch of good deeds will mean nothing for someone drowning in the sea of God's wrath. Help us to see that you swim out and bring us to shore, not because we're good enough, but because of your grace and your mercy and your love. And help us to see that that doesn't change after being a Christian for one year, two years, three years. We are just as sinful and evil 30 years after being saved as we were the day of salvation. But you still love us just because you are good. Help us to continue to embrace the truth of the gospel, knowing that we should do good works out of gratitude, but recognizing that those good works will never be good enough to merit anything in your holy, righteous presence. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your gospel. We pray, Lord, as we read through the book of Galatians, that you would give us wisdom and knowledge and understanding in all of these things. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.